0: Hello, everyone. Today is May sixteenth, 2022. I'm here today with Sean Riley. Sean is a doctoral student of evolutionary psychology. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Sean. Thanks,
1: Krush. It's good to be with you.
0: Yes, it's good to be with you too. Wow. So year one, we're talking is
1: ended. The first year of graduate school has ended, it's correct. Two semesters down, that's 20% of the the degree right there. Nice. How was it? It was challenging. It was difficult. It was interesting. It was a lot of different things. Learned lots. Discovered new things. Developed new skills. Just a lot. A lot of reading. A lot of new technical skills in R. just thinking about how to ask research questions and be able to put a plan together to try to answer them the best you can wow we're, what so were those the types of skills you developed or yeah what's i'd say the most, the most technical of skills in the first year was like really digging back deeply into statistics so developing a very con- abstract conceptual knowledge of stats, and then applying that in R. So I came in like having some experience with R, just very rudimentary experience. But after a year of being in the graduate stats class in the lab on top of it, I feel pretty comfortable doing certain analyses in R now. Wow. And like creating plots and stuff like that. Like the plots that you see in science articles, you probably, you, you must know that you know, like you're capable of making them in R just with commands.
0: Is that, what types of analysis
1: analyses are you doing? Um, For my first year's project, we did like linear regression. So we were trying to predict, um, how willing participants would be to, like, befriend this fake international student with their perceived gratitude of that student, the gender of the participant, the gender of the international student, things like that. So we did linear regressions.
0: Nice.
1: Yeah. Was the study
0: done this year by the grad students too?
1: The one I just referred to? Yes. Yeah, that was the that was my first year's project, but it was born out in in my lab in my larger lab. So, I mean my my advisor's Eric Peterson and he's he's been studying gratitude for some time now. And um the project that we did this year was testing just how expressions of gratitude can influence perceptions of that expressor and we used a fake international student, either saying thank you or not for a recommendation that participants provided them. And we saw how it influenced the perceptions of that fake international student. Wow. So
0: your program and what you're researching revolves around gratitude
1: yeah. And so like the deep theoretical thing with gratitude or the way that we look at just emotions in general is from an evolutionary perspective. So then we ask, you know, what was the function of feeling gratitude or expressing gratitude in our hunter-gatherer days? And we theorize that gratitude have had evolved over time to... Establish a new relationship with someone maybe maybe you had no relation with this person beforehand and you want to establish like a trade relationship with them expressing gratitude can. um, Influence that person to continue to cooperate with you in the future. And so. Yeah, the theory is that gratitude evolved to establish and maintain relationships over time throughout our evolutionary past. And um, a lot of work has used, like, economic games to try to um, see whether or not people are more generous to those they perceive as being grateful. And this line of work that we're currently doing right now is seeing whether expressions of gratitude rather than feeling gratitude itself kind of operate in the same way.
0: What do you mean by
1: expressions of
0: gratitude versus feelings of gratitude?
1: So if you were to give me some kind of gift, um, say that you were just feeling nice today and decided to hand me a hundred dollar bill, I would feel grateful just for your kind acts, because that certainly benefits me and it's certainly at a cost to you. You just lost $100. Uh, it's not a zero-sum thing, you know, like you you lost out on $100, I gained $100, it completely shattered my expectations. So I feel grateful for that, you know, I, but I can feel grateful and not express the, the gratitude back to you, right? And we think that that has consequences, whether or not I express gratitude back to you should influence whether or not you want to do the same kind of deed or a greater deed in the future, and by me expressing gratitude to you, we theorize that it does three things. You know, it signals that I've perceived that trade of $100 as a benefit. Like, who wouldn't, right? You give me 100 bucks. that's definitely a benefit to anybody. It should yes. be. So if I say thank you, I acknowledge that that is a benefit. Um, if I say thank you, maybe in your mind, you're thinking, okay, this person, you know, they acknowledge the benefit. Uh, they'll probably be a good cooperative partner in the future. And also, if I say thank you, thank you so much. Um, in your mind, you might be thinking that I will return a benefit in the future as well. Okay. But until, until that happens, you're kind of in the dark. But um, hopefully, the express of gratitude is being authentic and genuine in their expression of it so that you perceive they probably will return some kind of benefit in the future.
0: That makes sense. It's what's interesting is that a lot of people feel gratitude, but they don't express gratitude.
1: Mm.
0: What is it? Has the has your studies or research found anything regarding that?
1: Not any of my particular studies yet as of this year. Um, but expressing gratitude, it is it differs across cultures. So we see that in a lot of Eastern Asian countries, feeling gratitude is also accompanied with feelings of indebtedness, more so than it is in Western individualistic type of cultures. And it can kind of see some correlations between, you know, collectivist Eastern cultures. They are much more inclined to fulfill some kind of social norm or social obligation and have that be expected of them, right? More so than in Western cultures. So um, the elicitation of gratitude, I mean, I I don't know. I think like just in those cultures, fulfilling a social norm is a lot different than someone kind of giving you an intentional gift you know
0: yes it is it's very different across cultures and i know people i when i receive you know outward gratitude i like it i don't mm-hmm. always express when i feel gratitude but very rarely when i receive i don't think ever when i receive gratitude i'm not happy about it
1: right i mean in, i'm interested in like people that may be manipulating the use of gratitude though and i haven't really thought of any clear methodologies i could use to test those questions but that is kind of in like my mind's atmosphere um just because you can imagine cases where people are kind of like using this gratitude in an either showboaty way or in a manipulative way. Maybe they really aren't grateful, but they want the other to perceive that they are so that whatever exchange is taking place continues. Um, And I would, I would hope that humans are like equipped with something in our brains that allows us to detect when there's false gratitude taking place and when it's genuine and authentic, you know,
0: Yeah, it's very, I mean, for me personally, it's very difficult to express gratitude without actual feelings of gratitude. It takes Mm. a pretty, maybe that's not true. Maybe that's not true because there are things that, you know, people will do. It depends because sometimes, like, I received a gift last Friday. And i didn't Mm -hmm. want the gift but i was still grateful to receive the gift Mm -hmm. in general i just wasn't grateful for what it was but the act i guess of giving it is something that i appreciated but so i guess i what i was going to say is probably a bit valid i i feel this is probably true for most people but there's got to be a select few who are able to manipulate pretty easily? Most people can't express false senses of gratitude. I feel like
1: mm. only a select few of the sociopaths. Yes,
0: that's what is that how you is that what you think or what? what I don't do you know. Think I, about that?
1: I think it would be helpful, honestly, to like empirically show that just make it like a blatantly obvious case like make it blatantly obvious in some kind of experimental lab context of like participants witness an interaction between two human beings right and one person is just like they talk behind the other person's back or something like that and then come back and say something else to this person's face who gave the gift right like make it blatantly obvious that this person is just doing performative gratitude right and have people say how authentic do you think this is right i think that would be a good starting point for that type of research and that because it's asking like if you want to make it blatantly obvious compare it to something that's more subtle or that doesn't have the same manipulation you're going to see some difference there right and then you can kind of like chop away at the more subtle parts of this inauthentic gratitude but until that point i don't really know i think i think you got to start like hitting the hammer on the head and just make it blatantly obvious and one not so not so obvious and then get more subtle as you go got it yes there's a lot of different ways that people
0: could possibly detect false gratitude or Mm. different types of triggers to make them think that people are genuinely expressing gratitude yes So getting more subtle. So starting with the blatant obvious one and then getting more subtle through the trials makes sense.
1: Yeah, because it it would be really shitty to set up a whole set of experiments that are like extremely subtle and like the manipulations only very one tiny piece between conditions, right? And you set up all the stuff and you collect all the data to to only find that like the big the big hammer didn't even hit, and you set up all of this for not, and you kind of get these get insignificant results, and you don't even know whether your primary research question was answered. I think that's that's one thing that I learned over the course of this year too. It was like come in, <laughs> come in with a lot of big ideas. I have a lot of fantastical ideas. These things just kind of go through my mind, and um bring them to your advisor and i say this lovingly but like they shoot you down and be like well this isn't really a practical question you need to reformulate above and do these things right um but it's i mean and that's not to knock like the creativity or like the inspiration or these ideas right because those are all good things too but um i think like taking a more practical reel it back a little bit is a lens that i'm starting to grow and understand deeper as i go through this graduate stuff you know what
0: are some practical realities that you've had to
1: face kind of like the process that we just went through where it's like i can go in with one idea but then you i have to you have to understand like where the poles lie and see if you can even get those poles, You can ask a research question that'll distinguish between these two poles, right? And then go more What's subtle. a pole? A pole that like a like a polar end, like you know.
0: Okay, so two different,
1: you know, like J. Sorry, can you hear me? Uh, it froze a little bit, Karush. No, it's it's still a little bit staticky. It's still static. All mm-hmm.
0: right. Um. Do you want to get off and get?
1: No, it's, it's getting, getting better. better. Yeah. Now just talk How again. How is it now? Yeah. It's back. It's good. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's bad. Okay. Yeah. Um <laughs> so would two of those polls be genuine, like being genuinely gratitude and then being not genuinely grateful?
1: Exactly. And you could we could do that and we do it all the time in social psychology just using a Likert scale, listing at one to seven, you know, like on one end is not at all genuine on the other end on number seven is very very genuine and then like the points in between are like moderately genuine slightly genuine things like that
0: okay could there be more than two poles
1: Hmm. well you have a middle point too you have a midpoint which is like a proxy for feeling neutral on whatever scale that whatever measure that is on the scale Okay. but what you can do is i mean you can cross different variables too what does that do so it, i think that it assigns which, whichever variables say that you're using two variables to predict an outcome variable like you're predicting somebody's weight with their height and their age, right? And you say, give me some information about a person's age and I'm gonna try to predict their weight. You'll probably get a pretty good estimate. It'll reduce a lot of the error. But if you also give me the variable of age and their height, it'll make an even more accurate prediction at the person's weight, right? so by by including like more than one variable in your model in your predictive model you're calibrating each variable with different weights based on how well it predicts the outcome variable so that's when it can get interesting you can ask a lot of really interesting questions like in our gratitude example we could use like how intimidating does this person's face look on a one to seven scale and have that try to predict authenticity of gratitude. And then we could have another variable, like say that there's research suggesting that males are more exploitative of gratitude than females. We could also include gender in the model just to try to get more accurate predictions of whether or not people think it's authentic or inauthentic gratitude.
0: Got it. Okay, multivariable analysis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> Statistics is very crazy and yeah. seems to be becoming a, the premier form of mathematics moving forward with machine learning and AI.
1: Seriously. That that stuff's insane. And you're right. It's all like statistically and algorithms just making predictions the more and the more data they have access to the more subtle patterns they can detect. And like they can detect patterns that we can't even imagine to detect, you know?
0: Yes, they can.
1: Really impressive.
0: Very impressive. And what you're doing is on that par too. It's, it's a form of artificial machine learning
1: right using R I, I wouldn't call my stuff machine learning only because I have a colleague that does real quote unquote machine learning stuff like what do I don't they do I couldn't even tell you to be honest I really couldn't even tell you I know I just know that they feed a bunch of data so the person studies like um, face perception. And like people's ability to remember and p- just perceive cross race faces, like me perceiving you, for instance, you're a cross race person to me, and vice versa. And so, a lot of their work um, is just showcasing that, like it, it's much easier for same race individuals to perceive and remember things about their own members of their own race, and less less that's less the case for cross race. Anyways, that's what their work. Focuses on so I believe that they just literally feed an algorithm a bunch of actual data on like um, previous studies that have looked at that type of research, and then the machine is the machine algorithm just predicts how accurate a random participant will be at detecting a cross race person
0: wow did they create their
1: model or are they just feeding it data i would imagine they have to set up some like they have to do the hardware or they have to i'm sorry they have to do the software behind the algorithm and i don't know what that looks like really i don't know what kind of commands are involved and stuff like that but i would imagine my colleague is just in our building this algorithm that it's probably like an instruction manual on what to do with the with the data right and then you just let this thing go crazy with a bunch of data and then it builds its own intelligence on how to predict the next set of data
0: got it our, our language for machine our learning. language our
1: language and for don't you don't you use like python and other languages no i know python um
0: i talked to a data scientist recently and they said they like python for data science because they can deploy on applications whereas with r but you don't need to because you don't integrate your work with applications like software applications you I respond? don't,
1: but I could see that being useful in the future.
0: Yes, that's what the data scientist said. Python is superior in that sense, is that if you want to take your data models and the work you're doing with the science and then integrate it somewhere else, that, that's where Python reigns supreme over R. Have you used Python? Never. Never it's pretty simple. I would say it's simpler than R hmm. because it's, it's, it's a good, I mean, it's just not very like complicated. It's like, nice. Yes. Do you think you will need to use it or do you think you guys are sticking to R?
1: Honestly, I'm pretty ignorant of Python's capabilities. <laughs> I kind of just threw it out there cause I knew it was a name and like the computer software coding space yeah um, but yeah I've seen people like put together you can put together like experiments on it I believe kind of like a, a, a super powered powerpoint presentation um but yeah I'm still pretty ignorant about all of its capabilities but if I happen to need something that it can render then I might have to learn it in the future I don't know Whatever fits your use case. Exactly. Kind of just like, I'll put off learning it until I need to learn it.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, yeah, Python, you know, might become outdated in five years. It's.
1: Yeah, who you know. knows? But but honestly, like whatever replaces it, I would imagine, I would hope at least that by learning Python, you have some kind of fundamental skill that would be translatable to the new medium. Probably,
0: probably. So outside of coding, what else does your analysis entail? Or what, you know, when you work on a question? What do you have to do other than using art to create some sort of analysis and create graphs?
1: Yeah, Well, you got to set up the whole research design too you got to be clear about what your research question is what the what the theory would hypothesize for you about that specific research question Uh, you got to be very careful about how you operationalize each of your variables that you're including in the study and in your analyses it's just a very big like thoughtful brainstorming idea generating type of phase that happens before any study really. Um, So when I arrived last summer, like we were in that idea generation phase, we're thinking to ourselves, what kind of believable scenario can we put together um, to ask our research question, which is like, how does expressing gratitude affect perceptions of the people being expressing it? Right. And We came up with an idea and we said, why don't we just pair participants on an online study with an international student? We'll lead them to believe they're being paired with an international student who also attends the same university. We want them to provide a service to this international student. And remember how we were talking about like gift giving earlier? Yes. Yes that's a part of our theoretical model of gratitude. Like there has to be some exchange of benefit. We, call it, we just call it a benefit, right? So the way we operationalize that for our study is we said, this recommendation that participants are providing is acting as the proxy for a benefit in our model. Say that, that one sense? more time. Um, so in our theoretical model of gratitude, there's like, A benefactor, which is a person that gives a gift, and there's a beneficiary who receives that gift, right? Yes. In our example, you're the benefactor who gives me 100 bucks. I feel gratitude after that. In our study, the benefactor are participants who are providing benefit, a.k.a. recommendation to a restaurant in the local area, to the beneficiary who's this fake international student who then feels gratitude. Okay. So we operationalize the benefit in our study as this recommendation.
0: What do you mean by operationalize?
1: Operationalize just means like taking some variable, some construct in the world, the construct of a benefit, right? It's, It's a variable. Many things can be considered a benefit. Okay. And operationalizing it is how how you represent it within your study.
0: Got it. Okay. So that makes sense. And so did you come up with this study? Did you did you
1: I'm not sure what the word is, but not entirely, from, not entirely from scratch. So when I, when I came in last summer, these, these ideas were kind of bubbling already within my lab, but there wasn't like a clear pathway on how we're going to build it. Got it. So in our summer meetings, we had the this ideas of like international student communicating with participants. But then when we got into the fall, we're like, all right, we need to, let's design this. Let's like, how do we do this? And so, then, like, I started writing scripts for like what the international students would say, and like setting up the Qualtrics survey of like setting up the whole um, deception, like telling participants they're going to be paired with international students. So then we get to the building phase. You have to create the surveys. Um, I had to put together email templates, posing as the international students. Um, so yeah, it was I mean it's a it's a process. It's it's interesting because like when these scientific papers hit the journals, it's the end product of like a two or three year process. Wow. In in a lot of cases in social psychology at least. And is that process over or is it still continuing? Um Which one? The for for my study? Yes. So we ended data collection. We have our analyses. Next steps are deciding whether we want to write up a manuscript, which we would then submit to a journal to get published. But in a lot of a lot of like psych journals want a couple of studies before you submit a manuscript to them
0: got it they want the people that are writing the manuscript to have a few couple studies done and to yes. reference those couple studies
1: exactly wow it kind of builds the validity of the whole paper right if you do like say with this first year project i do two two similar projects next year and find like find results that mirror that of the first projects then that looks a lot better and that's like almost three replications of the same finding within one study
0: that adds a lot more validity and legitimacy yeah Yeah.
1: and you can ask that's how you can build that subtlety we were talking about earlier right it's like i did study number one where i hit the hammer i was seeing if we could see whether we could place these groups on either polar end, right, inauthentic, authentic gratitude. And then we did a more subtle manipulation. We, we, we made them privy to this information and then we saw that they moved from the previous study and that, that answers this more specific research question, right? Got it.
0: Is it ever the case that multiple studies will go on simultaneously? and they all relate to the same question and they're all being taken on by different individuals within the same research group
1: 100% and that's that's kind of a built-in one of the beautiful features of just how science works at least in psychology you know like there are people with differing theoretical perspectives that want to study gratitude as well and so they probably set up their research questions and designs a lot differently than ours. However, the combination of those two like parallel lines of research just gives a broader and like more comprehensive understanding about gratitude, for example. But that could be like, that is the case with almost anything in psychology. There's always multiple researchers asking similar yet distinct questions from one another using different methodologies coming up with different results and then it's kind of like, well, let's read it all and make up our own minds about what we think where the real truth lies, you know? But uh, it's, it's a great it's great to have that transparency and those kind of parallel lines of research all happening simultaneously. But when you first started asking your question, um, I think even within, even within one lab, like for my, my lab example, there's three different graduate students. We're all doing different projects on different things. So one advisor at any time can be doing three to four to five different projects all on different topics that are topics they actually publish in. And so they're members of like expert groups in multiple different domains of psychology.
0: Wow. Okay. So on this form of gratitude, you're more solo and your colleagues are doing their own sorts of experience which may be somewhat related but are not are not too connected
1: you know i actually haven't met anyone else yet or interacted with other people that are also doing gratitude from an evolutionary perspective really no there are a couple of—I mean—I read papers from researchers that share our theoretical perspective and do work on it. My advisor, of course, is one of them, um, but I haven't met these other people yet. And to my understanding, um, the research on it has been a little bit quiet as of in the late in the last few years. Um, okay. But the people are out there. I just haven't met them yet. And no one else at my institution is doing gratitude work in social psychology.
0: Wow. So you're the only one, you and your advisor?
1: Am I at CU Boulder, yes.
0: That's exciting. I didn't realize
1: that. Yeah. I would say that's. it might be the case for many of the graduate students. Uh, there's some pretty niche projects going on, to be honest. I don't doubt it what are some other niche projects that you know of one of my lab mates she's doing work on people's endorsing nuclear strikes and how it relates to like partisan framing <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great Isn't oh, that wow.
1: yes yes it and is the next iteration of her study is pretty interesting um, so they found some they found a partisan framing effect, but now they're interested in whether or not like making it salient to participants will lower their endorsement for nuclear strikes. And the way they're doing that is she's gonna show she's gonna show like a depiction of what one of these bombs would do over Boulder. Wow. <laughs> like this is the destruction, like as a visual cue, you know, to like this is. The potential of this bomb like now how willing are you to endorse a nuclear strike right
0: that's true but hmm. to be fair the united states probably wouldn't be the one bombing seat you know boulder no it would
1: probably be a foreign entity that would do that's- it Absolutely, and it's it's not framed that the U.S. is going to self detonate or anything like that in the study. Yes, <laughs> you know, but I think more its intention as a as a prime for the study, right, is like hopefully these participants are self reflecting on the potential destruction of dropping a nuclear bomb like this, right? Yes, to a place to a place that they live to a place that's extremely salient in their minds, right? And then see how their attitudes change as a result. It's an interesting it's it's temporary though, right? It's a prime because it's a prime. We're interested to see what what kind of what kind of differences in attitude can be attributed to showing people the blast radius of a particular bomb, you know?
0: It could be triggered
1: okay and there's there's a lot of other uh my other colleague she um her whole study was about like now there's a bunch of cultured meats now and like uh lab-based burgers grass-fed burgers um all all the different kinds of meats these days right yes Well, they're kind of asking the question of like based on people's perception of how natural these things are, like, do you think that a grass-fed burger is more natural than a pea-protein-based burger? Or do you think a pea-protein-based burger is more natural than a black bean burger? Got it. She's interested in how how perceptions of naturalness influence people's endorsement of different cultured meats? I would guess,
0: I mean, obviously, I don't know, but that people perceive what they eat to be more natural and what they avoid to be less natural. Yeah. Even though they're both highly processed. Like, we didn't kill any, you know, we didn't kill a cow, we didn't grind up its muscle meat, and we didn't form it into a circular, thin piece of meat. Yeah. So it's Yeah, it's an open ended question.
1: Yeah. And I guess like, uh, her, her work has never gone like, there's not there aren't scales out there. For measuring people's like perception of naturalness so that's exciting new like territory that they're stumbling into and it's a really cool construct like naturalness there's there's a lot of cool things that can be attached to that you know yes i feel as though
0: you know like ancient scripture old rules guidelines like you know the bible the quran the torah Mm -hmm. the uh bhagavad-gita those are all attempting to communicate what a natural life looks like Mm -hmm. maybe not necessarily natural but trying to implement practices that may put the individual in more of a natural state of being. Hmm. So I think natural is something that we all have, you know, like, cause civilization supposedly started 12,500 years ago. And that's when everything, you know, went from natural, or at least is my perception of it too, more man-made, more con- man-constructed, more, hmm. n- you know, the ability to say what's not natural before it's everything is natural and then with that we went into this you know civilization Mm. which destroyed nature Mm. and so a lot of ancient scripture tried to bring back that form of nature Mm. and so i think and i think your colleague who applies it to that is a really cool, really forward thinking study because that's huge for people. You know that I take pretty seriously what I put into my body. I'm not right. a vegan. I know vegans take very seriously what they put into their body. Mm-hmm. And we all, you know, we all have our perceptions of the food we put in our mouth and the foods we don't put in our mouth. And that's like, huge and people you know i hear people say like oh are like people will be religious about their new diet and some people like they're very serious about you know what they do and don't put eat their body and it's like it can be like that for them it can be like on this you know religious side where they're just like i can't eat this i won't eat this i have to eat this And so I think that's a really interesting study that your colleague put out and something that, you know, is probably the biggest, you know, as far as the general consensus, like the biggest kind of deal in a sense, I don't know, there's other ones too, like the, the nuclear bombing, but being vegan or being a meat eater is definitely a big question mark in our society today. And the reasons why are pretty, you know, I think that study answers them better than a lot of other questions
1: would. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of like practical import of studying something along these lines, right? Yes. It's like, you know, who can leverage the results of a study like this? Where can, we, where can we apply these results? If we find something like perceptions of naturalness are driving or a very heavily influencing factor in people's willingness to endorse and purchase, like consumer behavior, actually purchase these products, then who stands to benefit from that research? Corporations do people that sell these products and are developing these products, right? Yes. And there's... There's an interesting line drawn between like basic scientific research and, applied, and applying that research, right? It's like, my colleague can do the science and collect the data and do the analyses and report the results, but it's up to somebody in the business sector to pick up a science journal and read those results and decide to implement them in some way, shape or form. Um, it's not necessarily the scientist's job to do that, right? Um, but it's really cool to think about those implications of doing research like like my colleague is doing, right? And I like to think the same too, for like gratitude. and of course, I'm biased. like it's it's my own research. It's what I study. Um, but yeah, like something you were saying earlier was really interesting. Uh, just about the naturalness twelve twelve thousand five hundred years ago right started to develop develop societies and that's kind of where you drew you drew the line of natural and the beginning of unnatural but within like enveloped within that human beings are natural right so you can ask the, you can it begs the question of like all this unnaturalness that was brought about was brought about by a natural entity so where is the line drawn between like human beings own inherent naturalness and pro- byproducts of their intelligence, you know, like a rocket or like these computers that we're communicating on, you know, like we have an. In- I think that we all have a share an intuition to say that this computer is an unnatural thing, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's an extremely like philosophical point. It's It's hard to ask ask or investigate those types of questions in in a psychology study
0: yes it is hard and it's not yes or no really it's Mm -mm. kind of you ask the question you analyze the results you, you get the test going and then there are results and you move forward with that new piece of knowledge and yeah. then like you said the people who are outside of the academia who are dealing with others every single day it's their job to learn this to learn what the academics research to learn what they found and right. then to apply that to their to their use cases right be, I, you know, psychology is very important.
1: We all have one. We all possess a psychology. You know. What do you mean we all possess a psychology? We all have a mind is what I'm saying.
0: Yes, with a complex psychology behind it. Very complex. Yes. And we have to deal with people. I mean,
1: no all one all the time and so many different contexts too with different rules and social norms and levels of appropriate behavior No, so many
0: different contexts so many different you know people with different situations in their backgrounds you know what is nature to one person versus nature to another might be completely different and if we're not able to understand that how someone perceives nature is different than our way of perceiving it and how that difference alters our realities from each other right we we stand a lot to lose in that relationship and in turn from a lot that can stem from that relationship
1: yeah we're kind of like always doing this mental juggling of you know, what's in that, what's in the mind of that other person, what are their attitudes and their beliefs about this thing that I'm curious about, or that's relevant to our relationship. And the more I know you, I've known you for many, many years, I'm pretty confident in uh, my perception of your attitudes and beliefs on a number of different things. Right. But for a stranger, that I've never met before. I have no clue. I don't know any of their previous background, their experiences. All I have are visual cues and our mind is already doing some algebra with those things before we, we even interact with them, right? All this is to say it's, uh, human relationships are so multivariate and so complex and there's so many competing motives and it, it can, there can be so much depth too, but it can be extremely shallow. Just depends. It always depends.
0: Extremely shallow. I actually have a very, you know, I I want to hear your example or what your opinion on what I'm about to say because I have a, an example that just happened that's kind of like okay. this. Okay. So I I go to a dentist office. Hmm. I've been going to this dentist office for five years now since 2017. Okay. And um, I haven't gotten the cavities in the whole five years there granted i it's possible that my teeth cleaning in the last six months five years i've had zero cavities there and then today it's a it's a dental clinic so i've maybe had three or four different dentists my entire time there and today i had a new dentist Mm. i've never seen this person in my life I have never seen the dentist that I'm about to see that I saw today in my life. Today was the first time I ever met him. Yeah. And he diagnosed me with three cavities. And I was not having it at all. This guy yeah. is a stranger. Mm. I he has not been he has not i don't even know if he's seen my dental history over the last five years that this place has accumulated yeah. i just know he saw my dentistry today and he might be right he might be right he i might have three cavities in my mouth but i've never seen this guy in my life
1: yeah
0: i have no idea who this person is this clinic just put a random person in front of me and said, This person said you need to get three fillings in. When do you want them? And I was like, give me my x-rays because I need to really determine how legitimate this is. And it's the same thing, you know. After he gave me the diagnosis, I was playing this, this, these mind games. Like, is he, you know, like, is he just trying to like pull something here? Like. I've come to this clinic for five years. I haven't had a single cavity and all of a sudden I have three cavities from this stranger. I Mm. mean, that's a lot of like mind games going to, it's just like, and like you said, how, how am I supposed to go into that? Like, what do you think?
1: Yeah, it's, it is very complex. (laughs) And I think you set up that story great. So thank you. <laughs> You're <laughs> um, welcome. Evil dentist number 5. What was that? Yeah, evil dentist number 5. Yeah. Oh man. Man, I, I share so. in your skept- I share in your skepticism wholeheartedly cuz when I first moved here last year, went into the dentist, same experience. I, I'm in a new place so I don't know anybody. This everyone's a stranger but this pretty young dentist walks in and he had an aura about him and, you know, I pick up on that and I do judgments about that or whatever. And, you know, I need a root canal and two fillings too, you know, like historically though, I haven't had as clear of a record as you. So that's a difference right there that deserve different weights in our respective minds. Right. And, um, I would, I just applaud that you're aware of all these different variables that are potentially at play. And it's, I think it's a bit sad that most people just because this person is in a position of power, they're a dentist, just take it with blind faith that they need three fillings, you know, like what you're really what you're weighing really is like the financial cost of that and the time associated with scheduling three fillings and just the uncomfortness of getting all of that done you know and that's a big commitment and so you're probably also weighing the time that you predict it would take to resolve this using alternative methods or if you were able to do some research to get a second opinion things like that that's why second opinions are a big thing and I don't know how often they are in d- dentists, but like second opinions on doctors or urgent cares, like it's pretty commonplace for some people. Of course, people can't afford to go to multiple doctors. And that's a consideration. But yeah, the men- I I like the mental juggling that you're even aware of because most people just take on blind faith that this person is telling the truth and then you're probably also thinking of the incentives for the doctor to get these feelings out the door. And this is a brand new person. Like, come on, we can put two and two together. If you're brand new here, you want a stellar monthly quota, whatever, you know, but these are assumptions still.
0: Yes, they are. But those were the exact assumptions going through my brain. Yeah. And I forgot Well, you, you just mentioned something and I wanted to bring a point up to it and And I forgot what it was, but what did you mention before saying? What did you mention right there?
1: because <laughs> you can't do that to me. I can't I remember know. the things that I, I said. Know. I can't remember it either. Dang. Yeah, it's okay. It's lost in the ether. It'll come back. Yes,
0: it's lost in the ether. But it, it. Oh, I, I remember. It's um that. Second opinion, you know, Mm -hmm. those journals are requiring the graduate, you know, the groups, the academic groups that are putting out studies and that want to publish them to do their own second opinions and their third opinions too. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's not directly one-to-one on the same exact question. Maybe the question has been altered a bit. But at the end of the day, the big question is still slightly being answered, it's still, you know, in some way, it will become cl- somewhat clearer or at least the argument that's being made in there will have more than one reference because, you know, we can set up any one reference to do ex- anything we want. Like, right. you know, that's what science, which is funded by people who, by stakeholders who want certain result that can happen pretty easily Mm -hmm. so you know these research papers are making sure that the groups are getting those second opinions getting those third opinions we got to do that too and i think you know people don't take i mean it's a pretty serious thing like maybe getting feelings isn't too bad but like Going to a doctor, I mean, it's just, like, this is a whole nother question. This is a whole nother realm, but, like, Mm. not subjecting ourselves to, you know, I don't know, using evolutionary psychology in somewhat of a, in a way which can be beneficial and productive and keep us from being led astray by other people.
1: Yeah, I'm glad... You brought that up i was having a conversation recently with a fellow that i met at a conference and you know i told him just like what you're saying right like we want to apply evolutionary psychology in ways that are going to induce positive behaviors in our lives right what what are the principles of evolutionary psychology that can help guide our own behavior right and in a lot of ways in my own life i try to kind of approximate the life that our hunter-gatherer ancestors probably lived you know like i value my close relationships very much if you think about a hunter-gatherer tribe you had your family and you had a couple friends right that's about it and you need to depend and lean on those people very heavily on a daily basis to just get you to survive, not even to prosper. So that, right? And then if you think about diet, it's like, no such thing as processed foods in hunter-gatherer days, right? We had produce that was picked, berries, do some hunting, get some game, eat some meat, fire comes along, expands our range of consumable foods, right? But, never eating too in excess but and then you know like getting enough to eat at the same time so there's relationship implications there's dietary implications and just overall health there weren't doctors back then there weren't there were probably people the doctors back then were like shamanistic right probably people that are just very very intuitive and Probably very mindful of their own body's experience from moment to moment, and they're able to kind of guide others to that health, their health, their health perspective, right? So, like my kind of default, if I'm pondering about like ways that I can change my behavior or something like that, try to approximate the evolutionary past to the best of my ability. Yes, that's.
0: That's it. Living, you know, more naturally, as I would guess, almost everyone in your colleague's study would say, or even, you know, religious texts would try and get people to live more naturally. And another thing is not in taking so much stimuli, hmm. like, you know, I I had a, For sure.
1: what yes. So then, like, lifestyle choices, you know? We didn't have access to technology back then. While it's a fantastic tool, and we are capable of using it responsibly, there probably is some, like, undefined evolutionary threshold for the amount of stimuli you can take in in one day, right? Yes. And we
0: have to be aware and respectful of that.
1: Yes. How do you... How do you what, personally become aware and how do you respect things like that, like the intake of stimuli? I try, I do have in
0: you know, social media, Instagram, various things. I try and not keep it on my phone. I try and not have email on my phone. So the only two things that I can check on my phone are my texts and Twitter that's one i'm not very good at it i honestly need to improve dramatically you know i need to improve in lowering my stimulus intake because there are times where you know i just feel too too stimulated and something that i've been doing is just you know i i try and have no electronics in my bedroom at all and i'm pretty good about it Sometimes I'll bring my phone in, but generally I'm pretty good about no electronics in the bedroom. Mm. And so I'll just go into my bedroom and lay down and just put a pillow over my eyes and just lay there for 10 to 20 minutes. Maybe I'll fall asleep. Pillow over the eyes. It's a funny image, Grish. Yes. Yes. I have a, I have an eye mask, but I, Definitely do the pillow over the eyes during the
1: day. I don't know why. Do you do you do some form of like breathing exercise as the pillow is over your eyes, or what do you what's your mind usually doing at that time?
0: It's racing usually, it's kind of calming down. Mm. Um because I I think I don't yes, I don't do any breathing. I should get back into breathing, but I feel like we're not, you know, we're not aware, we're so stimulated all the time. And we Mm. sometimes rarely give ourselves the ability to, to lack stimulus, not and then a lot of people have very little awareness practice too. Yeah. So it's like, a lot of people don't realize how things in our near environment can dramatically affect us. Right. I think the biggest one for me is music. Like, <clears throat> i all have trance blasting. And I can't concentrate on anything because there's just trance, you know, this like really loud EDM going in the background. It's like, yeah, it's, you know, <clears throat> the idea of not having anything going on in the background and just like being there is very boring. And I, I had a guest on. Retired naval captain Rob Casall, and he said he thinks boredom is essential mm. to just being, and I agree. It it slightly is essential to just be bored.
1: What do you think? What was his kind of general thesis about it? If you don't mind me asking, he was his thesis
0: was, I want to say the same nearly the same as ours where it's like people are on their phones all the time you know he he we recorded a podcast he came over for three hours and he left his phone in his car for the three hours nice and so and he's older than us you know he's you know maybe 20 years older than us which is different because us you know we've been People our age have had phones since they are iPod Touches since they were like nine years old, and that changes things. Some people right. now have had iPod Touches since they were born. You right. know?
1: It's a It's an extra limb.
0: It's an extra limb. And a lot of parents, you know, I was talking to someone about how, like, a lot of people in third world countries don't have very good access to technology mm-hmm. and so parents now you know are like wow my kid and you know some you know there's obviously a movement to get kids to, to you know get off of the the screens but there is also sort of thinking where i want my kid to be really tech savvy right. so in order for that to happen he needs to be in front of a computer all the time which probably will get him tech savvy but could also get him you know obese could also get him anxious could also Mm -hmm. get him low social IQ low social skills right could lead him to some pretty dark avenues on the internet or her on the internet if there's not some control so I'm not sure well I'm not sure where we were going there but yes boredom is I think so yeah. he was talking about just that's the context he meant like kind of the same yeah. where
1: I think I think I can see it it's like there's a there is an inherent utility to boredom in that in a world in a tech savvy world where our dependence in technology is ever increasing and Parents nowadays are facing issues of technology never before seen in our human history, right? Related to like their kids' attention span, um, how social they can be just with other kids rather than hanging out just using iPads and stuff like that. So I think there is a utility in setting, setting time to just be bored. But you know what's interesting is like, we can say that we're extremely bored by sitting on the patio at our own home and just watching watching life go by. But we can also be, we can be sitting on a patio in a hotel room in Hawaii and watching life go by and have that not be boring, right? But you talked about awareness training previous, right? And like with the, I, I believe, I really believe with the right amount of awareness training, you can see the richness and complexity in both of those scenarios equally. Yes. So like being bored on your patio at the house, just run of the mill type of day, right? We call that boring. In Hawaii, doing the same thing, ch- chilling on your patio, not boring. But I think my point with the attention, like, like being mindful of all of the things that are making up the constellation of that experience on your quote-unquote boring time on your patio at home if you train your attention just right you can see the richness see the complexity and then hopefully you could just dissolve the boredom of that situation by recognizing those things
0: yes it takes awareness practice Awareness training. It takes some lessons too. You and I have both used an app, 10% Happier, which has, you know, people will talk about other apps, but I really like 10% Happier because it has instructors. You know, almost all of the meditations are instruct, you know, guided based meditations. And there's a lot of lessons in there that, you know, one is thinking about death then it's like okay we're dead we're gonna die so why would i be mad about this moment it's hmm. all i have or
1: and, and you know to someone to someone that doesn't that statement can make a whole lot of sense or it can make a whole it can be just complete bullshit just depending on who you ask. Right. And then of course, everything that's in between those two things, like, Oh, I can see what he's saying, but that's not the way I live my lifestyle. You know, but it is interesting. It is interesting. Like both you and I have trained in intention and other, we don't, I don't know too many other people that have like the level of experience that we have at the young age that we're at. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, it's hard to say whether that's a kind of unique feature in training and mindfulness meditation, not like your relationship with death, but the way that we hear about it from these instructors, like it's training our way of thinking about these things that can be really disconcerting if you don't process them. If
0: you don't process them, that's big. Cause those, they're going to come. These issues, these problems that these instructors speak of, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether or not we do awareness training, of listen, learn, you know, listen to these lessons, the issues are going to arise and they arise in everyone. So having that ability to create space in order to process before reacting it's you know it's makes a world of a difference
1: yeah it really does like this sounds super bouldery and hippy dippy like it does since your eyes are closed in a meditation it does really open up this kind of third eye of perceiving right or it's like you can start to perceive thoughts as they come through as thoughts in your day-to-day life off of the cushion and that I think that that is that space that you're talking about between something happening in the world, someone getting angry or saying something disrespectful for me. Right after that stimulus ends, there's some kind of uncontrollable thought that comes through my mind. Yes. I'm able to I'm able to perceive it. There's that space. I can perceive it. I can assess whether it's going to be a helpful thing to act on. I can do all this all these different manipulations with it but only because i have the awareness of that thought otherwise you'll just behave and that's what the teachers that we listen to just that's how they distinguish a reaction from a response is how a reaction is kind of just thoughtless behavior a response is giving thoughtfulness to the thought and behaving accordingly. And being responsive versus
0: being reactive is, I mean, we're the ones who, you know, it alters, it alters whether people, we we make people feel like they want to be around us. For example, one of these lessons is gratitude consistently, Hmm. you know, keep in 10% happier, they're always talking about gratitude. So if we're able to first cultivate the awareness to separate reaction, you know, separate stimulus from reaction, well, there's some reactions where we have no gratitude, where it's like, actually, you pissed me off you disrespected me you Mm -hmm. didn't do anything for me at all if anything you hurt me anger anger and then but then it's like you create that space Mm. and then that's once that space is created then there's a space there's room for a response and if we Mm. have that lesson that's where the lesson is able to come in when we have broken the automated reaction and we're able to implement a spatial response we can bring in these lessons like gratitude and then we can take advantage and then we can take advantage of these things that you're studying and that evolutionary psychologists are speaking about like you know for you your questions are about gratitude your colleagues questions are about um, sentiment about naturalness or sentiments against, you know, large scale war, you know, war bombs, right? Those things, you know, matter and we have, we should be aware of them. We have to first create space for ourselves so that we can actually implement these lessons and we have to be aware of the psychology in order to understand what's the
1: easiest route for us to take right yeah that space that space between the example you used right like there's good reason why we ought to become angry at certain events right again we believe that it's an evolved emotion so some somebody has wronged you in a way that shows they do not care about your wa- your welfare too much, right? They did some harm to you. they're taking value away from you maybe for their gain or maybe they're just being punitive because they like to be in their narcissistic. right? Yes. in those cases, people who express gratitude right off the bat, they probably continue to get stepped on or died. Yes you know? people that appropriately applied anger to the situation, it's pushing back against that person. It's saying, "Hey, you've wronged me," and I'm signaling that you've wronged me. So, what do you want to do next about this? It's yes. an evolved emotion. It's an evolved response. It's a good. It's a good, fair response. You know, but in a lot of cases nowadays, people will get angry for seemingly petty things. Right, uh, that person didn't like my Instagram post. I am. I'm infuriated, right? It sounds petty. I'm sorry. It sounds petty. <laughs> you know, maybe this person is taking a shower or busy or their cell phone died, you know? That's why they didn't like your post. But if if that person also trained in mindfulness or awareness training, they experience that anger, but they still have this built-in ability to create the space between whatever decision they decide to make post anger, right? They have this built-in space. And when, when you were explaining that, I thought you were going to say like to let the gratitude in. That's true. That's, that is a good way to put it. Like doing what I like to do a lot. And we've been through this a lot, Krush. It's like, we've had some tough experiences in our life. But when we reflect on them, we acknowledge it was hard. But what we take away from them are these silver linings, which are positive. Right? And we have gratitude for these silver linings. If you can do that kind of similar analysis in the moment, holy shit, it can transform just the way that you relate to your own emotions. And that changes how you relate to other people. So it's not just a personal advantage, I think. Training training, and mindfulness, training attention, it certainly has profound effects on the individual, but, you know, people interact with that individ- individual. People are influenced by that individual, and if that individual is more mindful, um, you might want to be interacting with that person.
0: Yes, completely, because a mindless person will do anything, will be, a, can be, you know as mindless as a monkey to -hmm. be frank and you know a mindful person is really gonna consider you know hopefully how you're feeling how they're just gonna take a lot more into consideration in general so they're gonna take a lot more about you about the person that they're interacting with into consideration
1: yeah Something that someone said to me like a while ago, while I was in Santa Barbara was like, I was an undergrad and I was talking to a grad student at the time. And he said in his experience, and it's very simply put, it's just like the people that he's known to practice meditation are just more observant. And I think that's directly related to what you're talking about. These people take more variables into consideration because of their ability to literally observe more things in their own mind, like products of their own mind. So they're just like the rep, the repository of data in someone that's mindful is larger than the repository of data in mindless individuals.
0: I can't agree with you more, I I feel as though my memory has Hmm. dramatically improved in the last five years. My ability, because I had, you know, maybe six years ago, I had a girlfriend and I was not practicing mindfulness. I didn't even, I don't think I meditated at one point when I was in a relationship with her. And she said, there are two types of people in a relationship. There's a lever and a placer. A placer is a person who puts things in their place. And a lever is a person who just leaves anything wherever. (laughs) And yes. And I was a lever. And I'm still slightly a lever, but with mindfulness, it's very obvious when things are out of their place. And I've gained that
1: like the the day-to-day experience of being in your own mind you're better able to detect when things are off
0: i mean literally when physical things aren't in their place like when i say (laughs) lever and placer i mean like someone who leaves clothes wherever versus someone who puts clothes away in a laundry hamper all right so
1: yes it's like like some of those before and after photos like what's different about this photograph from the previous one
0: yes exactly and some people would know because they're like oh that was there that was there that was there but you know a mindless person doesn't didn't observe when that was being placed there or when that person made that comment or if another person reacted with a comment of a certain tone
1: yeah you know what's interesting what's that That it made me think of like there's there's some research um it's an anthropologist called gosh he's got steve Gollin from ucsb he did like a farmer's market study right and he had both men and women walk around the farmer's market and after they exited he asked he asked both the men and women to point in the direction where like the avocados were or the lettuce or whatever right and there is a there's a supposed gender difference or sex difference i should say when it comes to like spatial memory remembering exactly where certain objects are and it's biased towards women having better spatial memory that's the theory right and so in the study when gollen asked these participants to point in the direction of various fruits and vegetables women were better than men they you know and like anthropologists have detailed think back to hunter-gatherers like the men went out to go hunt they they had to require they had to cultivate this skill set that is good for hunting women gathered berries and produce and stuff on low hanging bushes and trees which are static objects it would be to their advantage to like know exactly where these things are in in space and to orient their like pathway of walking there every single day right that it just made me think of that when you're when you're talking about spatial memory but it's interesting that you've experienced like an enhanced or augmented version of spatial memory in your own life as a like as and you're attributing that to meditation
0: yes and meditation you know it really it's it's life altering and it's mind altering and we should take advantage of it along with the lessons that can be put placed into that space as you said like gratitude or whatever that may be
1: once yeah. you know once that space is created it's like a gross a gross oversimplification and not even physically possible but i kind of think of it as like You know, in those movies like Limitless where he takes the pill and then time literally stops. Yes. Like everything in space and time stops except the person. That's kind of how I think of mindfulness or that space in between stimulus and response is like you can stop everything and take a step back. Even just for a moment. And it's so helpful. So you, pause, no. you can pause everything. Just pause it. Let me get to a more still place and then let me act from this still place. Like you
0: said, though, earlier, a lot of people might hear that and say, call bullshit. Say, yes. no way. But yes. I'm going to say that most of those people have not practiced mindfulness and have not caught themselves thinking a thought yeah yeah
1: i would go as far as to say that too
0: because what like the first time you i caught myself thinking a thought and like creating space from that thought it was i oh like just my entire i was like whoa i was only meditating for maybe five minutes every couple of days mm-hmm. but i just had this one instance where i was like whoa i didn't even mean to think that thought no so you know if people are skeptical they should really just try it i mean what's the worst that happens you just stop after a while yeah
1: i i think you know Back to like the the data set analogy. It's like, if you have more data on what your mind is doing at any given time, you can, you can create better models of behavior because you have all that data to work with. You know, you deeply know what sets you off. You deeply know what makes pleasure or suffering in your life. You deeply know patterns of your own thinking. And you can really select, you can like do a lot of self selections out of situations that do cause the suffering and do some self selection to put yourself in situations where you can create skills and things like that. But all of that is based on having this large repertoire of data on your own mind. and you can leverage all that data. Again, you just leverage that data to build a better self going forward. My guest today has been Sean Riley.
0: Thanks for coming on the podcast, Sean. Thank you, Karish.